coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Real world pirates hack a shipping company, the open source libraries from the Mars rover found in malware, and Microsoft has a solution for that post-hack hangover, plus a bunch of great questions, our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 257 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 3rd, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about them as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream, it's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week for 257 weeks is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. You know, Don't get confused by the date. It's like, no, this isn't last week's episode. This is this week's episode. We're just right. not here, so we recorded it last week. We time travel. We figured that yes. out. We have time travel down. In fact, not only do we have time travel down, we also have hilarious shirts down. I completely mm -hmm. agree with your shirt. For those listening, Alan, could you, uh, yeah, I will read it for the audience at home. I cry because others are stupid. And what's it say way down there? And it makes me sad. <laughs> it's got a big frowny on there. <laughs> now, that's not something that's going to be, what you'd say, um, a real crowd pleaser when you go out and around in town. People might look at that and be afraid to talk to you, Alan. Just putting that mm -hmm. out there. So I hope you're having fun at Asia BSDCon as we, re as we record sure this episode. Yeah, I'm sure you are. And our So Thursday at this time in Tokyo, it's like... Let's see. It would be at 2. So it's, it's 5 o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> it's 2 p.m. Uh, JB time right now, uh, right, which means it's, it's 11 p.m. in Paris. Uh, That's the wrong way around. Okay, so it's... I, can, I should right add it. Right now in Tokyo, uh -huh. it is 7 a.m. on Friday. Wow. So when we normally do TechSnap, which is 4 o'clock my time, it'll be 6 a.m. on the Friday in Tokyo. Well, I will still be asleep. Happy TGIF, Alan. Happy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, shortly, but by the time this episode is over, I'll be getting out of bed and heading down to the uh, Tokyo University of Science uh, to get uh, to do FreeBSD Developer Summit ah. and then get educated about D-Trace. Oh, very nice. I'm a little jelly. Uh, so mm -hmm. just as a bit of peace of mind, aren't you glad with our first story that you're not going by the sea and that you're going by air? Because apparently, <laughs> apparently sea pirates have taken to hacking into companies to find out what their inventory is before they board the ship. Is this, is this legit? Well, this seems like a good way to do it. If you know that, hey, there's a shipping company and they run ships back and forth here. But, you know, if we just attack a random ship, we might get, you know, uh, a container load of stuffed animals. And what we would really like is a container load of iPhones. <laughs> True. Right? So, yes, as described in Verizon's most recent data breach digest, which is basically this report they compile of all the stuff they've investigated, uh, it's case studies from the company's risk team that helped investigate and solve problems in the past year. Uh, a reputable global shipping conglomerate uh, started having particular problems with sea pirates. I love how they had to specify the sea pirates because when you say pirates, you don't actually normally think of actual pirates. No, you think software. You actually mean actual pirates. The shipping company was telling Verizon that pirates were boarding their vessels at highly uh, regular intervals. Equipped with a barcode reader and weapons, of course, searching specific crates, emptying all of the high-value cargo and ah. making off with the loot within minutes of launching their attack. And leaving the cheap stuff behind. Yeah. 
So instead of having to search the whole ship, find out what's there. Meanwhile, you know, the ship could have called for help and, you know, the the task force of NATO ships is, is bearing down on them. Uh, these guys are, you know, basically doing smash and grabs on these ships, but they know exactly what they're looking for. All of this made the shipping company think there was something strange uh, and so they hired the risk team to track down the source of the leak. The risk team quickly narrowed down the problem to the firm's outdated custom-built CMS. Aha! Which featured an insecure upload script. Shocker. Which allowed the bad guys to upload their own script and execute it when, you know, it was meant to only upload, like, PDFs or whatever, right? Hmm. Add another one to the list, Alan. <laughs> yep. Uh, the number of the, you know, I, I've, I've seen the innards of one of these custom CMSs for a shipping company. And uh, it was basically built by the people I didn't want on my team for another product we were building at that company. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, yeah. As the Verizon team explained, a hacker, either part of the Sea Pirate group or hired by them, uh, had uploaded a web shell via the insecure form. In turn, this shell uploaded inside the web accessible directory. Um, make things worse, this particular folder had the execute permissions. Uh, using this access to the shipping firm's database, the hacker pulled down the bills of lading, uh, future shipment schedules, and ship routes so the pirates could plan their attack and identify crates holding valuable content and exactly when the ship would be passing by. Uh, fortunately, the hackers weren't that skilled. Verizon says the hackers used a web shell that didn't support SSL, meaning that all executed commands were recorded in the web server's log. Nice. Risk team was able to uh, recreate a historic timeline of the hackers' actions and identify exactly what they looked at and when and where they sent the files. Uh, the risk team stated that these threat actors, while given points uh, for creativity, were clearly not highly skilled. Uh, for, instance, uh, for instance, we found numerous mistyped commands and observed that the threat actors oh, constantly struggled to interact with the compromised servers. Is it D-I-R? What? No, L-S. Oh, okay. <laughs> Additionally, as a sign of their lack of skills, the attackers also didn't use a proxy or VPN and exposed their home IP address. <laughs> well, okay, that's so That's just bad. one of the great stories. But uh, if you check out their... Breach, uh, Data Breach Digest. It doesn't have a lot of detail on each of these hacks, uh, but it has some amusing stories. and Definitely worth checking it out. Yeah, I guess people call up Verizon. Uh, surprisingly, they seem to cover quite a bit of these. Well, uh, they bought some other company. In Br yes, yes, very so. true. Brilliant, though, uh, too. If you're going to go board a ship, why not go hire uh, some attacker for whatever, Bitcoin or for a little bit of cash or whatever? Right. Well, if you're going to be a pirate, you what you do is, yeah, you hire someone to go try break into a bunch of shipping companies. When you find a specific company, and you it's like, all right, we know that this boat is going to be taking this path on this day, and on in this crate is some goodies. Yeah. And then you just get on there, grab it. Get offload the cargo but and get you, out of there. You can see for the hacker, quote unquote, hacker here. Uh, you could see how they maybe they're just getting you know some money. They're not like part of the pirate group. They're not like you know no, sitting in like some pirate hideout on an island somewhere hacking over a satellite connection. They could be anywhere in the world, and this pirate group could be any come online and mm -hmm. claim to be anybody and just hire them to do this. Yeah, uh, you know it, it could be you know one of the pirates' wife's cousin's nephew or something or it could be you know hire some person from you know uh europe or you know uh a regular uh, not third world country or whatever and and just be like hey yeah break in here and you know do your script kitty thing and tell us which ships to go after and then you know it, it does it makes you wonder it's like 
did the attacker break into the shipping company and then find some pirates? Did the pirates know they wanted stuff and do this? Or was it kind of like a happy coincidence that these two people found each other? Yeah. Uh, interesting. Huh? And of course, these shipping companies, you know, it's they're they're uh, they're not su- super focused on their CMS. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they don't. They, they say an outdated custom CMS, but the outdated part makes me sound. It's it's probably some customizations to a Joomla Duper or WordPress, and you know, boom, shell, or some archaic custom thing that some vendor made. For yeah, them. but when they said outdated. See, if it's custom and you're the only customer, then the version you have isn't outdated by definition. Other than maybe outdated standards-wise. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, by the way, the way they it's a one-off and they don't... <laughs> yeah. Then it makes me... It implies that, yeah. there's been future updates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, and so right. it's, it's probably, a, you know, a custom Drupal or Joomla or WordPress. Do you have uh, any other thoughts on the story, Mr. Jude? Uh, I don't know. I found that immensely amusing, so... Yeah, uh, pirates have uh, made it to the 21st century, apparently. And uh, I like that they also are equipped so, with barcode scanners. Like, okay. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that, that was faster than trying to read the manifest or yeah. whatever. And uh, yeah, it's all of a sudden we have digital pirates that are actually pirates. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, digital pirates meet real world pirates. It is 2016 after all, Alan. You know what else makes it feel like 2016? IX Systems. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They got super powerful rigs for your small business all the way up to your massive enterprise deployment powered by those super nice Intel processors. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check them out. Uh, We have here at the JB1 Studios a free NAS rig. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had it since uh, a little bit before I moved in. It's getting close, Alan. By getting close, I mean I think we're getting ridiculously low on storage. However, I did while – don't tell Rikai. <laughs> while, while Rikai was gone, I went and I cleaned house like on like a whole bunch of temp directories and stuff like that. And I think I freed up like a like a few well, – like 60 gigabytes of space. Uh, and I, this FreeNAS rig has been with us since the very beginning, so much so that now, you know, you kind of forget like how crucial it is to the infrastructure because it, it's just – you set it up. And you forget it. We have uh, all of our media storage on there for all the show production. We have all the media storage on there for like the television stuff that we have here in the studio. Uh, all of the virtual machines that we run here in in the studio, which is not a lot, but they they are important, run mm-hmm. off of our free NAS server. And that's just how we've used the free NAS product. Uh, but there's a lot of companies out there that have been able to use IX systems and their technology to take I- open source solutions to the next level. Like like Alan, for example, mm-hmm. in Scale Engine, you have a new rig on the way, don't you, sir? Yes, we got uh, a bunch of stuff. We got the GPU transcoders have started shipping. Uh, we expect those to start arriving soon. Uh, luckily, I was able to actually, because IX are so good, it was like, I know I ordered them and it turned out to be a bad time, but the two that are coming to my house, could you not ship those until I get back from Tokyo oh, so that idea. they don't get stuck in like customs purgatory waiting mm-hmm. for me to sign paperwork mm-hmm. when I'm not in the country? Nice. Uh, but the two that are going directly to data centers in the U.S., they're going to uh, they're configuring them and shipping them for me. Very cool. Uh, I, I think that'll be, you know, uh, if people go over to ixsystems.com slash text that, that, that supports our show by going there. And then mm-hmm. dig around. I think you'll be pretty compelled by what you find. Having yeah. deployed through, diff- through, through various clients, pretty much every major OEM out there's hardware platform. When I got to the point to deploy hardware for my own business, it was an obvious choice to go with IX Systems. And if I was still in the business of, of working with clients, I would be very much nudging them very strongly in the direction mm-hmm. of IX Systems. Go check them out and see why so many clients 
like Evernote and Adobe and Mozilla. Even Mozilla, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Twitch and uh, Palo Alto and Juniper Networks. NASA. Look at that. Look at the freaking NASA and U.S. Army, our IX Systems customers. Now, I like they've recently updated the Sony and Tumblr yes, and TiVo and down. Sega. I like the way yes, and they've broken like, them down. If, if you, you know, whether you're a, a school or a movie studio, you need your files to not go away. Yeah. So. State government, high tech, uh, education, media entertainment. This is a really nice page. Go check them out. Learn more. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. And a big thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. See what we've been talking about. Okay, so this one's pretty interesting. I guess uh, India's ambassador to Afghanistan, if you follow me, has ended up being a target of like some pretty specific malware that mm-hmm. has some interesting connections. Heritage. Yeah, some good heritage. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about this. Yep. Uh, so according to Palo Alto Networks, which is a security researching company, on December 24th, 2015, India's ambassador to Afghanistan received a spear phishing email that contained a new malware variant, which, if downloaded and installed, would have opened a backdoor on the official's computer. India has been a trustworthy business partner for Afghanistan, helping uh, the latter build its new parliament uh, complex, the Salma Dam, along with uh, smaller transportation, energy, and infrastructure projects. Because of its tight connection between the two, it is normal that other nations or interest groups would l- want to know what's going on between those two countries. Like maybe the U.S., perhaps? <laughs> Everybody. Yeah, okay. Uh, especially China and so on. Uh, especially when you have you know infrastructure contracts. Everybody wants the money to go to their side, right? Whether it's the Chinese, the French, or the Americans. Yeah, sure. Uh, the ambassador's email was spoofed to make it look like it was coming from India's defense minister. Uh, and attached to the email was an RTF file. Which, if you remember back, uh, RTF files were big when I was in high school because <laughs> the school board used WordPerfect, but everybody had Microsoft Word at home. And so it was a format you could save and you get basically almost plain text, but with the formatting still there. Also, Microsoft Word was the, a big one yeah. at home, too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so and this was a. Yeah. Uh, and so an RTF file would work with any of those and allow you to move stuff between the programs. And anyway. Rich text format, baby. Yeah. Uh, it just turns out that it's uh, rich in flaws as well. We've seen <laughs> problems with it quite okay. a few times. Okay. Uh, yeah. Pell Alto researchers say that the file contained malicious code to exploit CVE 2010-3333, which is an old Office XP vulnerability, resulting in the download of a file called file.exe, from the domain newsumbrella.net. Nice. Not entirely sure why. No. Uh, this file was automatically launched into execution and was a simple malware payload dropper that was tasked with downloading the real threat, a new Trojan that the researchers christened Rover. This malware is given the Rover name because it relies on two open source libraries, OpenCV and OpenAL. Uh, which were written originally for the famous Mars rover exploration robot. No. OpenCV yeah. and OpenAL were written for the Mars rover? Yes. Uh, or are used by, anyway. That's, that, I, the, first of all, I didn't even think the Mars rover would use anything that advanced. That seems that's impressive. Well, in particular, OpenCV is a library used in computer vision applications and image processing. So it makes right. sense, yeah, right? Yeah, that's yeah, how the rover yeah. sees. yeah. And OpenAL is a cross-platform library for working with multi-channel audio data. Okay. Uh, so, you know, when they want to send sound files back and forth and so on. 
Uh, its capabilities include the ability to take screenshots of the desktop in BMP format. So that's really that's built into Windows. That's not really open TV or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and send them to the command and control server every 60 minutes. Logging keystrokes and uploading the data to the CNC server uh, every 10 seconds. And scanning for office files and uploading those to the CNC server every 60 minutes. Additionally, there was a backdoor component that allowed attackers to send commands from the command and control server and tell Rover to take screenshots or start recording video via the webcam or audio via the microphone whenever the attacker wanted to. Hmm. So, though Rover is an unsophisticated malware lacking modern malware features, uh, it seems to be successful by bypassing traditional security systems and fulfilling the objectives of threat actor behind the campaign and exfiltrating information from the targeted victim. An oldie uh, but a goodie, in other words. Yeah. Rover is largely undetected by today's virus engines, uh, or antivirus engines, and despite not coming with many features, it is successful by uh, keeping a low profile, exactly what cyber espionage groups need from the malware, right? If they'd used something more sophisticated that had a bigger signature, then it might have got caught sooner. Or something you know, something more popular, more widely spread, has yeah. m- more likely going to get detected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rover is largely... Oh, we just said that. Uh, the new Rover target... Oh, that, there's some uh, a link here to the blog that covers even more. Yeah, I'm showing some of the visuals of it from their uh, blog where from Palo Alto mm-hmm. Networks directly. Uh, the chat room points out that uh, at least OpenCV was originally created by the Intel Research Center, although it doesn't say if that's at four uh, NASA or not. But uh, at least... Anyway, OpenCV and OpenAL are used by the Rover and... That's why the Palo Alto guys decided to name this the is no good. malware rover. No good. It's going to get everybody confused with the rover log, and I don't know. I don't know how anybody watching. Oh, your rover. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. What? I heard I didn't, that. I just didn't. I heard it. I heard it. Nonetheless, I, I didn't heard say it. it was a dumb idea. No, I heard it. I heard it. It's still fun. It's still fun. The road trip to an event. You're just jealous because you fly and I drive to these events. I've, I've driven to BSD camp. Well, I didn't drive. I rode yeah. to yeah. BSD camp. Now picture that was this. Six hours of silliness. Yeah, exactly. Now picture making the con- making the show out of the best of that six hour drive. There. Now you have that six hour drive was basically me blabbering for six hours. Yeah. The, the, the people already get that every week. That's true. Although, a car ride with Alan Jude is obvious, is often very entertaining. I think we have recorded them before in the past, but they're just the audio quality really? was horrible. I think um, I, I think you and Noah had a had a long ZFS conversation. The, that's possible on yeah. one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Noah tried to do something on the way from the airport. It was like dark and rainy and noisy. And yeah. Yeah. See now, rental when cars I, don't have good sound isolation. See, when I was coming back from scale, I got stuck in a tornado. See that 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 needs to go out. That's a rover log. That's I was stuck sure. in a tornado. That is crazy. All right, Mr. Jude. Any other thoughts on this particular? Too bad the tornado story? wasn't bigger. <laughs> wow, wow. But then, how would we have made it to 257 episodes? Think about that. Eh. We would have had, you know, what we could have had. Imagine if I had nothing to do on Thursdays anymore. <laughs> No, you know what would happen. Work could I get done? You know what would happen is Noah would have sat down right here. Is what that that you just just been stuck with Noah? It's just that's what would happen. I guess that's an improvement. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. 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 Hey, he wears Google Glass, but you could probably. I think you could probably get him converted to PC of BSD with a long campaign of talking about BSD. Uh, Okay. Any other thoughts on that one before we can move on? Uh, No, I think we're good to go. All right, then let me tell you about Digital Ocean, sponsors here of the TechSnap program. And we have a great deal where you can support the show and get yourself a $10 credit if you use the promo code SNAPOcean. If you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, it's a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server up in the cloud. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start 
at only $5 a month. For 512 megabytes of RAM and 20 gigabyte SSDs, they have all SSDs, doesn't matter what rig you pick, a blazing fast CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. They got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and... Bangalore, India. Boom! (laughs) Brand new one. Brand new one, at least as we record this. Uh, and their interface is super great. And this is really what made them stand out for me. I love the fact that they have really a really great platform, 40 gigabit E connections to the hypervisors, all SSDs for the entire infrastructure, modern CPUs so the virtualizer can take advantage of all of the good stuff, and then a bunch of great distributions of Linux and FreeBSD to deploy. And if you're deploying one machine or multiple machines, they have management inf- interface for that. If you want to deploy an entire application stack, or maybe like a Docker container stack, or a, like in a LAMP or Nginx stack. They have all of that ready to go, one click. Then once you've done that, it's easy to add your SSH keys. It's easy to manage with their HTML5 console. It's easy to back it up. And if you want to extend it further, they have a very straightforward API. Go check it out. They also have a great community section with fantastic tutorials, like ones for Let's Encrypt or Prometheus, or setting up Tink VPNs or even package management basics for the Linux size and the FreeBSD. So use our promo code SNAPOcean over at DigitalOcean.com. Go set up a rig in the cloud. Incredibly fast and unbelievable value. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan. So let's talk about our next story. Before we do, I just saw an amazing thing on Twitter. Yeah. So you know how we described the cloud as, you know, it's other people's computer? Yes, there's no so such on. thing as a cloud. There's other people's servers, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> this one is the Internet of of Things. It's like uh, my other computer is your refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a good one. Ah, oh, the Internet of Things. Uh, okay, so yeah. what if you took yourself an antivirus and like a, like a, a intrusion detection system, and you said. Here's a new Marketing. approach. Marketing. Punch it up. Make it all cloud-based with client endpoints. You know what you got? You got yourself a new Microsoft product, don't you? Yes. So Microsoft has announced its new post-breach enterprise security service. Post-breach? Called, yes. Uh, so this is for dealing with the fact after you get hacked, because it's pretty inevitable at this point. Uh, it's called the Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection. Dun, dun, dun. I, I love how they reverse the letters of APT to make ATP just to make it hard to say, (laughs) which responds to those advanced attacks on companies' networks. The company found that it currently takes an enterprise more than 200 days to detect that there's been a security breach. And then it takes them 80 days to actually contain it and clean it up. So when there is such a breach, the attacker can steal company data, find private information, and damage the brand and customers' trust in the company. Okay. All true. For example, a social engineering attack might encourage a victim to run a program that was attached to an email and execute a suspicious-looking PowerShell command. Uh, oh, that's new. I am th- PowerShell? Why, why can PowerShell ever be run from email? That should just not be allowed ever. <laughs> like, shoot it in the head now. It sounds like uh, it's yeah, a bad idea. The advanced persistent threat software that is typically used in such attacks may scan ports, connect to network shares to look for data to steal, or connect remote systems to seek new instructions and exfiltrate data. Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection can monitor this behavior and how it uh, deviates from normal expected system behavior. The baseline is an aggregate behavior collected anonymously from more than 1 million Windows systems. Sorry, 1 billion. Whoa. So 
All that anonymous data you've been sending back to Microsoft, they've aggregated it from a billion different Windows computers, and now they think they know what a normal computer should do. And so they can detect when it has a virus. Okay, so in theory, First, I kind of, of think that's uh, a neat idea. Wait, yes, but how did they get one billion Windows computers that didn't already have viruses? Hmm. So how do they know that, you, in other words, how do they know the behavior is the, normal? Their baseline doesn't already include viruses. Okay, fair point. And, 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 yeah. and, and that would be... Even even if they did know, it'd only be ones they could detect. So, yeah. is it uh, if the system on your network started doing something that the average window machine doesn't, a Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection will alert you. So that's uh, a good chance for way too many alerts, but we'll see. Uh, the whole thing is cloud-based, where there's no need for an on-premise server. Uh, a client on each endpoint is needed, so you have to install this program on every one of your machines, right. and it will be constantly calling the cloud. Your so servers, you're your desktops. Need a big fat internet pipe, uh, just to. And more importantly, the security aspect of, if you weren't creeped out by the fact that Windows already collected data from a billion computers, they now want to collect all the data, uh, everything that happens on your corporate machines. They want to send it to the cloud and see if it's okay. Uh, yeah, so you need to install the software on every single endpoint, uh, which would presume that the extended version of Windows, uh, oh, which is the extended version of Windows Defender. Yeah, it's this new version uh, that's going to be available for Windows 10, I think. Yeah. Uh, Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection is under development, although it is currently available to some early adopting customers. Uh, this service will help enterprises to detect, investigate, and respond to advanced network uh, advanced attacks on their networks. Microsoft said that it's building... Uh, on an existing security defenses that Windows 10 offers today, and the new service will provide post-breach layer of detection on the Windows 10 security stack. So it will look for fishy things happening on your computer after it gets hacked. Uh, with the client technology built into Windows 10 along with its cloud service, it will help uh, detect threats and make uh, that make it past the other defenses and provide enterprises with information on uh, to investigate the breach after uh, it happens. Uh, to avoid Windows 7 becoming the new Windows XP, the company is being rather more aggressive in applying pressure to users to upgrade to Windows 10 sooner rather than later. But I like Windows 7. Don't take it away. Um, Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection is going to be part of the same push to Windows 10 and won't be available on any older operating systems. Oh, yeah. Uh, Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection uses cloud power to figure out uh, when you've been pwned. <laughs> Nice headline from Ars for that one. Yeah. Uh, well, cloud power to figure out when you've been pwned. Plus, you get a dashboard. And every CTO loves a dashboard, Alan. So yep. if you're watching the video version, so the this dashboard's is coming up. Microsoft's version of the Norse pew pew map. <laughs> yeah, only for your own land. Um, okay, so. So it's like, yes, we try to find machine learning and, and detect when the computer's doing something on normal, but. I don't know. I'm just expecting a, a false positive level that will make it impossible to find anything useful in these reports. So this only makes sense in context with an with a absolutely comprehensive network defense strategy. Like this yep. is not and cannot be your only defense mechanism, because yep. if it is, what it is selling to you is mediocrity. It is selling the concept that you're going to screw up. You're not going to secure your network properly. You're going to get compromised. So use the power of the cloud to figure out exactly what happened. Right. So, yeah, th this isn't trying to provide you any extra protection against getting breached. It's just hoping that you yeah. can find out a week after instead of 200 days after. 
legitimately could be part of a comprehensive protection yeah. strategy, but on its own, it's it's almost it's, laughable. It's kind of like that sugary cereal that they sell to kids. It says part of a complete breakfast, <laughs> only if on top of this bowl of cereal with lots of milk, you also eat an apple, a banana, some eggs, uh, a <laughs> glass of orange juice, a glass of milk, and have some toast. Right. That's pretty much exactly exactly what it is. Like if um, you actually look at the commercial, you'll see they have all these things because if you don't get all of it, that's actually not a complete breakfast. What do you think though about the cloud powered aspect of it? Perhaps usable? Um, Useful maybe? If you have a thousand machines in your enterprise, that's going to send a lot of data to the cloud. At least if they had some on-premise server that was like a proxy or something, it would allow you to a aggregate the data before it goes to Microsoft, uh, but be just, you know, try to avoid making as many calls to Microsoft. The big thing is, how do you have an air-gapped part of your network with this? You wouldn't be able to use it because it would have to talk to Microsoft. Yes, uh, unless they come up with some sort of like WSUS type style on-premises coordination server. Yeah, but I think mostly the reason it's cloud-based is because it depends on having this giant mm-hmm. database, which mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. when I say giant, it could be huge, right? They have the behavioral analysis of a billion Windows machines, uh, in order to detect when your machine's doing something abnormal. WTATP is going to be part of the same push for Windows 10. So get off Windows 7 Enterprises and get on Windows 10 for WDAPT. <laughs> How many enterprises have made it to Windows 7 yet? Yeah, I know, right? Jeez. Every, it is. Do you do you still, like when you go to doctor's offices and whatnot, are you still seeing XP in places? Because I am. I still am. Uh, I, I don't banks, look at them, Banks? But... I'm seeing XP still? Oh, Alan. It's, whew, it makes me lose sleep at night. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Any other thoughts on the story? Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it actually works. <laughs> I would like to see any customer who's actually used it and actually detected something. Let us know. So, Basically, my biggest concern is just I imagine the false positive rate is going to be so high that it'll be like the target breach, right? It's like, oh, yeah, our hmm. system detected it, but it also detected 10,000 hmm. things that weren't a thing. And Here's my question. So are are you submitting information to the network to the cloud solution? So if you're running Windows 10 and you have Windows Defender, you are essentially submitting information to this collection well, network. Sounds, based on the one billion computers thing, they've been collecting this since yeah. before Windows 10. Right, but that's only going to work on Windows 10. So, but here's where I'm going right. with this: you only get to, so you all are uh, participants of this cloud service, but you only get yep. to take advantage of the information directly. If you have the whole end product, I guess. Right. So you see how that's kind of interesting a little bit. Like you're mm-hmm. all part of the uh, N and node client like sensor network, but you don't get access to the dashboard and have enterprise management unless you pay up. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the bigger thing is just. Um, sorry, I lost my thought because somebody linked pictures of complete breakfasts and it's got. <laughs> Milk and juice and the bowl of cereal and uh, toast with <laughs> yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. eggs, there's buddy, butter or um, cream cheese. And there's other ones got some like sunny side up eggs in there. Yeah, a whole bunch of like <laughs> other stuff. Yeah, that's pretty good. Samuel Jackson apparently uh, on there. Uh, you know what? That's uh, that's a good that's a good Google image search right there. That's legit. That's yeah. legit. Oh, well, Captain uh, Crunch. So, uh, the bigger one is. What stuff will Microsoft maybe know about but not tell you about? You know, does the NSA 
have a whitelist in, in Microsoft service so that when the NSA malware is running around your network, it doesn't set off Windows Defender? Mm. That's a really creepy thought. Yeah. I got to shake it off. I got to well, shake it uh, off. And more... That's that's like that that is super conspiracy bacon right there because if well, yeah. if Microsoft worked hand in hand with a government agencies to not alert you and, and you know you could even say maybe they would work hand in hand to prevent a, a, a specific client from being alerted. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's uh, that's something, Alan. Mm-hmm. Well, the bigger one is you know uh, just is this going to attack uh, detect small attacks that don't have a signature? Ideally, it's supposed to because it's supposed to whenever you're supposed to notice unusual sense. behavior. Yeah, but I don't know that you know unless your corporate machines are locked down with like application whitelisting and that only these things ever happen on your machines. If it's going to be that useful, so what what cl- and what classifies as unusual behavior? Does a new application that's spreading via social networking that's you know maybe something mm-hmm. that just taken this just launched today it's something new and it's spreading like wildfire and a bunch of people are installing it that could almost come up as malware right when google launched version 10 of chrome to the public and maybe 100,000 people downloaded it did that look would that look like to a system like malware all of a sudden how does that work exactly Mm-hmm. It's going to be really interesting. And if anybody out there has any hands-on experience with anything like this, please email us. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and uh, give us your hands-on experience. That would really help us out and help us inform our discussion about it. I'm going to also help inform you about your purchasing decisions with Ting. This is a great way to save money on your mobile service and still kick butt. They have CDMA and GSM network you can choose from, no contract, and you only pay for what you use. Ting is on a mission to make mobile make sense. They break it down. Messages, minutes, megabytes, that's all you pay. And it's a flat $6 for the line. Average team bill for each line, 23 bucks. They have great customer service standing by to help you. CDMA and GSM services, they have a great dashboard. The official Ting dashboard is incredible, and it's backed up by an app that works on Android or iOS to manage your Ting account. You can shut lines down if you don't want to use them for a little bit. You can turn off individual services or voicemail or call forwarding right from the app. Super easy to do. I loves it. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get a discount and support the show. And while you're there, try out their savings calculator. Plug in your current usage, your minutes, your text messages, and your megabytes, and your bill total before taxes. And then calculate savings. For me, I save $2,000 about every two years. $2,000. TechSnap.ting.com. Go get a discount off a device. Go get credit towards your service. And while you're there, visit their blog. This one's for me. Live 24-7 news without paying for cable TV. I'm a cord cutter. In fact, where I live, cable isn't even an option. So this is pretty cool. They've got a great write-up on ways you can get real-time live news. Which, you know, during the 2016 election is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And they also have uh, audio coverage, which is really cool. Different yeah, apps you, and stuff you can do hey, to get the if, news. If you're going to be out and about, you might as well uh, avoid wasting bandwidth on video when you just yeah. want to listen while you're I'm driving gonna, or something. Yeah, for my phone, that's going to be great. So check that out at the Ting blog. But first, to read that, and you don't even have to be a Ting customer to take advantage of that stuff. Go to yep. techsnap.ting.com to support the show, and then you can go read that. Learn more about Ting. Maybe try out their savings calculator and see what they could do for you. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. Hey, Alan, right now, as we are recording this, BSD-132 is probably 
Mm-hmm. I mean, as this is being released, 132 is probably already out. I bet you already know what yep. it's about, too, don't you? Huh? It's One... funny you should say that, because it's about me. <laughs> oh, yeah? Is it? Is it? <laughs> yes. After much requests from the audience, uh, we interviewed me. Really? Okay. Or, uh, Chris interviewed me. That's great. I, I that... couldn't be in two places at once. <laughs> wow, that's a great idea. Hold on a second. How come I've never thought of that? I've never... That seems like that seems like an obvious choice. Uh, all right. It so, seems like an obvious choice for a week where you had to pre-record and you forgot and you didn't have an interview lined up. Well, anyway. actually, I don't. I mean, yes, it is. It is brilliant for backup. But now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking. I'm thinking I should do this on Linux Action Show. I think I should steal that idea. That's a great you idea. Steal all my ideas. <laughs> oh, I love you, Alan. So go check that out. How many interviews did you have before I started an interview show? Now, hold on now. Hold on. Many, really. But see, you're not counting the pre-video shows. You're not counting the pre-video shows, which have lots and lots and lots of interviews, including interviews with Mark Shuttleworth and others for many years. I know. But you know what? Hey, if it's a good idea, that's I mean, it, honestly, I would, I would love to interview Noah, and I would love to have Noah interview me, because he's a pretty good interviewer. Mm-hmm. That'd be who knows what could come out. Who knows? So listen, uh, in between uh, all of the shenanigans, from time to time there are stories that slip between the cracks. Either uh, they don't quite fit the context of the TechSnap program or something like that. So go check out Tech Talk today over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Another technology show right now live on Tuesdays with an open bumble room. So think of it as like a tech show with a bit of a call-in aspect, although it's not like a, your typical call-in radio because not just anybody calls in. We kind of have an established group of mumblers that have to pass like a mic check and stuff like that. But it is an open mumble room, and you're welcome to join in Tech Talk today. Usually, almost always these days, also uh, co-hosted with uh, Angela. Cool. Yeah, so it's a, good, uh, it's a good chance to check in with her, and we often talk about Kickstarter projects. And uh, network news, like uh, I, I talked about the fact that we'd be doing a double recording today in episode two, uh, yep. 234. So check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can download all that goodness right now because the TechSnap program is about in the midway point because the news is all done. It's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or maybe starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. John writes in with our first email this week. He wants to talk about the main differences between a router and a switch. Now, stick with him here for a second. He says, I've always wanted to pick your brain. In the last episode, Chris asked so nicely that uh, maybe you would need more emails since you guys were shooting a double episode. I've been Googling a lot with no clear answer. What's the main difference between a router and a switch? I don't mean about DHCP and any other special software running on top of the router or a managed switch. For instance, if I have several switches in my network, it doesn't matter how they are interconnected. One into the other, say daisy chain, or multiple switches into one switch, or two, com- two computers will not notice any difference if I'm correct. To them, it will all look like just one big flat switch, because ARP works only inside one broadcast domain, if I'm correct. Does a router do all the things that a switch does, plus something else? So a router routes traffic from my network to the internet, while a switch only routes traffic inside my network? Did I make any incorrect, any correct or incorrect conclusions? Uh, and he has a second question. So, I'll let yeah, you start well, there. We'll get to the second one. Um, so basically, yes, that's how it works. So uh, part of the confusion is the devices we call a router often are more than that. Uh, so in a regular, if you, if you strip a router down to the most basic things, it would only have two Ethernet ports, an in and an out, right? And the one would go to the internet and one would go likely to a switch and then to the rest of your network. Uh, 
But most of the routers you buy nowadays have one port for the internet and then have built into it a little switch. Uh, you know, and that's you when you see like four or eight ports or whatever on your on the little router you get from your ISP or whatever or buy at Best Buy. Uh, yeah, it's got a basically a built-in switch and it's got X ports, but it actually has at least one more port than you see. And that other port is actually internal and goes inside the router. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so routers, or sorry, switches work on what is in, if you look at what's called the OSI model. So in networking, there are seven layers. The first layer is physical, and this is an Ethernet cable, right? And it's when you actually send electrical pulses or light pulses across a cable or a fiber, right? And so that's the physical layer. Layer two uh, is basically where you have switching. Um, and so this is just each machine has a MAC address. And uh, yeah, so it's the data link layer. So this is where uh, you have no IP addresses. You just each network card has a MAC address. And that's where ARP happens. And you just say, hey, you send a broadcast. You yell, everybody in the room, hey, who's this MAC address? Or who has this IP address? And then they give you their MAC address. Uh, and then you can send them a message. Uh, the problem is that this uh, doesn't scale. Basically, you can imagine a bunch of people all in the same room yelling, trying to find which one of you is named Dave and which one of you is named Paul or whatever, right? Uh, if you get a lot of that happening at once, you then can't hear the answer. <laughs> or, you know, people yell, I am, and you're mm -hmm. like, which one are you? Um, and so, actually, before switches, what we had were called hubs. Mm -hmm. And so a hub uh, could either be passive or active. But basically, when a packet came in on one port, it would send it out every other port. Right. And it didn't do anything else. It was just dumb. Like you could actually have passive ones where it was literally just wired up, and there was you didn't it didn't have to be plugged in. Great it for sniffing traffic. Great. Yeah. So yeah, with a hub, every traffic comes in on one port, goes out on every other port. Switches are slightly smarter. When they see the traffic come in, they look at the MAC address, and they're like, "Okay, I know I've seen that MAC address before, and it's on port number seven, so it sends the packet only out port number seven. Or if it's a MAC address it's never seen before, or if it's what's called a broadcast message, like uh, the ARP one is like, who has this IP address? Um, then it sends it out every port, except for the one it came in on. Um, and that's all that switches do. And so, yes, uh, when as far as a computer is concerned, no matter how your switches are configured, uh, it's all one network segment, unless you use VLANs, and that's you're basically creating virtual switches. Uh, but every computer can talk to every computer, and it's fine. Um, and what gets really complicated is some switches actually have limited routing capabilities, but then they're are called layer three switches. But anyway, routers, as you can see here, are listed as the network layer. So this is where IP addresses come in. So with IP addresses, we have subnet masks. And this basically defines groups of IP addresses. If So on your computer, when you ping another computer that's on your LAN, it sees that it's inside the same range of IP addresses as defined, the range is defined by the subnet mask. Mm -hmm. If you're inside, if you're trying to get to a machine that's inside the same network as you, you will actually just do ARP, get their MAC address, and send the message directly to them. Right. And you don't touch a router. The switch delivers it. If you're trying to send a message, say, to a different IP address, say, one on the internet that's not on your local LAN, right. then... Uh, your computer notices, hey, this is not inside my network. I don't, I don't know exactly. I can't just yell and find this person because they're in a different country. So you have a routing table where you have 
uh, a bunch of other routes and and then there's the uh, default route and that usually points to a router so it says if you can't find the person you're looking for in the room send it to the router and the router will know where to find them so then um, you actually do ARP and find the uh, MAC address of the router and you send the router your packet mm-hmm. and the router sees it and says oh it checks its routing table sees if it has a direct route to it if not it will uh, send it off to your ISP and its router will keep doing this eventually until somebody knows how to get to where you want to go. Uh, and so, yeah, so the switches don't look at IP addresses and they can only talk to people that are in the same network segment as you, the same broadcast domain. Whereas routers are what who you talk to when you need to leave your current broadcast domain and subnet. Alan, uh, so, yeah. that's a great... Great, great description. Uh, yeah. Well, I taught a class on this. Uh, <laughs> it's actually a lot easier when you can actually show it by looking at wirecast captures yes, on multiple yes, machines that you're sure, doing this. Sure. Like in the in the classroom, we had we had uh, ten rows of computers. Well, actually, two rows of five, but they were separate. So you could see ten different rows, and each one you had like five computers in each row, and then each one had was connected to a, uh, a, a server at the back, which we used as a router. And you could packet capture on all the different interfaces and actually see what happens. And uh, actually part of the exam was um, this network diagram. And you had to, as a packet went between the computers, you had to write what the MAC address would be and what the from and to IP addresses would be all the way as it traversed the network. And see that at every hop, the source and destination MAC addresses change because you can only talk to other machines you're physically connected to the same switch as or same series of switches as. Hmm. Whereas the router, it's, you know, when, when I ping Google from my computer here, I don't actually know what the MAC address of Google's machine that's going to answer that ping is. All I ever see is the MAC address of my router. Right. And my router only sees my MAC address and the MAC address of my ISP's router, and then on and on and on. But IP addresses are global. Hmm. And so on. That is an excellent description and a yeah. great email. But it can get very confusing because most routers have a built-in switch, and uh, some switches can have a built-in router. <laughs> yes. Or it some does. routing capability. It does, you it. can see how it does make it confusing to people that are kind of yes. new to all this. Yes, yeah. because uh, I was lucky to be just old enough to have had a switch or had a hub and then got a switch and saw the difference. So the big thing, yeah. uh, I guess I didn't explain it. So the disadvantage with a hub over a switch where the switch actually... Uh, only sends the packet at one interface is if you say have eight ports and you have a connected bunch of computers um, if you have two computers that are talking to each other like I, I'm going to send a message to Chris and I'm going to it's a big message so it's like going to use a whole gigabit for 10 seconds uh, if separately uh, Rikai is going to send a, a message to the website uh, on a hub they both try to send it at the same time the electrons smash together and get all garbled and it's called a collision and the packet gets dropped and both sides have to resend. Right. And their network cards have built-in thing where they pick a random amount of time to wait so that they don't both send at the same time again. Uh, With a switch, um, when we both talk, uh, the switch only sends it out to the right port so we actually don't run into each other. Although if Rakai and I both try to send a message to Chris at the same time, it can still collide. 
I remember what I recall about the hubs uh, was that I could do easy packet capture for analysis yes. of what the hell was going on for my network. And later on, managed switches added mirrored yes. ports and made all that uh, very yes. possible. Mo- most uh, switches now have the ability, uh, managed ones anyway, have uh, either what they call it a cap or a monitor port or or something to that effect where you can actually say, all the traffic going that goes out or in or out of this port, also make a copy over here that I can plug my laptop in and Wireshark it. You ready for Jacob's question? Uh, didn't John have a second question? Oh, yeah, you're right. He did. Thanks. Oh, boy, I almost completely forgot because uh, that was such a, <laughs> such a comprehensive answer. Yes. Uh, he says, uh, the second related question, do we need a firewall in our home uh, routers? I, I can initialize a connection from my private network with a private IP address like 192.168.1.10, but somebody cannot initialize a connection from the internet to my computer, correct? Is this a feature of IP protocol or a feature of a router or a feature of my firewall? The last part is totally different in a data center environment, of course, than when you get a public IP. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, take care. John. So it's equivalent to a stateful firewall, uh, but it's kind of an accidental feature. So when you use NAT or network address translation to have multiple computers behind your router all go out to the internet with your one public IP address, when a packet comes back into that IP address that isn't a reply to one of your computers, your router doesn't know where to send it and therefore blocks it. And that accidentally makes it a firewall. Now, many routers have a feature called like DMZ mode or something Mm -hmm. where they will send all the packets that come to a computer that it doesn't know which computer behind the router to use, that you can set one default computer and it gets everything, and then it's not really a firewall anymore. Right. Uh, so yeah, basically the way it works is when you make a connection out, say on my computer I go to Google, the router notes, oh, you went to Google, which is this IP address. So when Google sends a reply back on the same port number, it's like, oh, that you're answering Alan's question, so I'll send the packet to Alan's computer. And another computer can also go out to Google but it'll use a different port number. So when it comes back in, it looks in this table and it's like, oh, this came for this port number, so that means it goes to this other computer. It's actually very simple when you think about it. Yeah. And so it happens to work like a stateful firewall. Uh, but you know, if you use the DMZ mode, then the one computer is no longer being protected by a firewall. But yeah, in, in, a, in your typical NAT router, it uh, it basically only works that way by accident Due to the fact that when you get an un, a packet that's not a reply, it doesn't know which of the five computers behind your router is actually it should go to. And so it's just like, right. I don't know what to do with it. I'll just throw it on the floor. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's it, basically equivalent to a stateful firewall because if if you don't – every time you go out, you add an entry to the state table. Something coming in doesn't match that. Then it gets dropped Rejected. on Rejected, yep. All right, so Jacob writes in about penetration testing. He says, Dear Tech Ninjas, I was listening to a podcast that described hiring someone to do penetration testing. If I were inclined to hire someone to do this, what should I look for to make sure I don't get ripped off? Are there different things to look for when hiring someone for work versus hiring someone for a personal test? They're likely going to get in. Those guys are clever, and I'd rather not have my data gone in the process. Thanks, Jacob. So things to look for when hiring a penetration tester. Uh, I have several things that cross my mind, but... You have better answers than me for this one. You know, one of the things I noticed when I was doing this for hire was a lot of my competition was going in to sell the, the, the repairs or the remediation process. So the penetration testing was a means to an end. It was, let me find enough things to scare you, to get you to hire me 
to, to fix them. fix it or to sell you this product. Right. So uh, that's where I would start. And, and, and of course, any smart pen testing, uh, like large operation, is going to offer remediation. I mean, that, that only makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I, I, would, I would look to make sure that's not their primary motivation uh, is to, to scare you. Also, um, look at what kind of data you're going to get in the end. You ask for example reports of what they yes. find from previous clients if they can because they should have some sort of presentation for you. So what kind of data are you going to get? That's the other thing I would ask for. And then yep. client references. And really you get those three things and I think you're probably pretty good. That'd be yeah, because, uh, you know, it's really because of how it is, it's really hard to tell the difference between you know, some guy that has, you know, downloaded Kali Linux or whatever and a couple of uh, scanning tools. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And an expert because the expert is likely going to also use those same tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I'll, I, it's like, you know, I'll, and anybody can use a chainsaw, but some people are better at it than other people. And my competition would come in and if if my when they they would come in and they would offer the penetration test for free, that is a huge red flag because what they yeah. do is so uh, it, Anything, any any penetration testing software is going to find a ton of stuff uh, because there are there are degrees of risk, and so you can right. make anything so a lot look of the bad. software is just like I was able to see a path name because I did this. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, that doesn't actually mean anything. But. Right. So that's that would be what I would watch out for, Jacob. Is keep an eye out for that. All right. David writes in with our first ZFS question of the week. He says, "Hi guys, I'm sending you an obligatory ZFS question for your double show. I have a RAID Z2 with four identical discs. I have room for two more. So I thought two more identical drives. Oh, so I bought two more identical drives as the other four. If I understand correctly, the first four drives are a VDEV, and these two new drives will be another VDEV. Is that correct? So could I put these two VDEVs into a bigger pool, but always get two pools? How can I expand my four drive Z pool, but just get one Z pool? Thanks for the explanation, Mr. Jude. Regards, okay. David. Um, so when you have multiple VDEVs, that's still one pool. It's just you're having two separate virtual devices. Uh, in ZFS, each virtual device is responsible for its own redundancy. And so if you have two VDEVs with RAID Z2, then you'll have two drives that are, are uh, one group of four drives where two of them are for parity, and then separately another group of four drives where two of them are for parity. Whereas uh, if they're all one, then you would end up, you could have like six drives with only two parity, but it doesn't work like that. Um, <clears throat> the advantage to having separate VDEVs is that you get more IOPS uh, because with RAID Z, your level of IOPS is equivalent to one disk out of the RAID Z. So if you have four disks or eight disks, you get the same number of IOPS. So if you have eight disks, if you make two separate VDEVs, you'll get twice as many IOPS. Um, so you can add as many VDEVs as you want, uh, and it's all the same pool, and it'll be fine. Uh, but part of your question was slightly confusing. It says, so you've got two more identical drives... Oh, as identical to the other four. So this is the complication. Uh, normally, you would want to add four more drives at a time, but if like, you know, your SATA ports or physical space or whatever mean you only use two, um, you can, I think you can add a mirror to a RAID Z. It's not ideal, though. Uh, and you could do that. Uh, hmm. And then you would get the, the space. Hmm. What what's sort of the hesitation there? Seems like uh, well, no, normally you'd want to add four more drives and do a second RAID Z, or have used mirrors all along and have three VDEVs of two discs each. Right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. 
Uh, because currently with RAID Z, you can't add more disks to an existing VDEV. You can only add more VDEVs. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the ZPool ad will let you add it. You might have to force it because it doesn't let you do it by accident because you don't want to mix mirrors and RAID Z if you can avoid it. But if it's your only option here, then it should be okay. So you would just make a mirror out of the two remaining drives because you can't make a RAID Z2 out of two drives, right? Uh, and uh, set it up. But ideally, if you were building this system over with six hard drives, you would want three sets of two-disc mirrors and you would get the same level of redundancy, uh, almost. You know, you would be able to lose up to three drives, but you would uh, not want to lose two from the same pair. So it's not quite as good, but... Um, it would give you a lot more performance because of mirrors. Mirrors are faster. Absolutely. All right. Are you ready? For, are you ready for space? But with only six discs and using at least two of them for parity, you're really not going to have a big difference there. Are you ready for Caleb's question? It's a hard yes. one, Alan. It's going to be tough to answer. Uh, Alan has mentioned his unique internet situation before, but I don't believe he's ever gone into detail. I was curious if. For the sake of all of us being very nerdy, Alan could explain the setup. He's mentioned Hurricane Electric as his ISP, but how does that work exactly? Does he get Metro Ethernet IP transit to them? How is the last mile leased? What is the cost and benefit of such a configuration? I feel for myself and many other TechSnip fans, we'd love to learn more. <laughs> right. So uh, from Hurricane Electric, we buy IP transit. And so basically that means we get a switch port on their switch slash router thing in a data center in, a, in Toronto. So that's not that useful for my house immediately. Uh, but then we get, uh, it's called a, we get Ethernet transport service. So transparent Ethernet. So from the local cable company uh, via their carrier services division, uh, they run, they terminate a one gigabit fiber optic connection to my house with this little device that gives me uh, an optical port um, and the fiber runs to a node up the street here uh, so they ran it on the telephone pole so they didn't have to dig and then it goes under the street into their uh, node that is already there to back the like the regular cable network in the area then uh, it's called transparent ethernet because what's actually happening is they're taking my ethernet packets or frames and stuffing them inside their own frame with like a VLAN tag and passing it through their series of switches and stuff all the way to Toronto. It's like 75 kilometers. So I don't actually have a direct fiber from my house to there. I just have, uh, as far as my computer is concerned, I do, right? Uh, but it basically packaged up the, my Ethernet frames into a bigger packet and runs it across the regular switch network. Uh, and then at the data center where it comes out, uh, then had to pay for a cross-connect from the basement of the data center, which is where all the fiber comes in, including the one that uh, terminates from my house, and then connect it to uh, Hurricane Electric in the Meet Me Room, which is actually on the sixth floor. Um, so yeah, the interesting thing is that both the cross-connect in the Meet Me Room and the transport service uh, from my house to the data center cost me more than the internet bandwidth does. Although <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't discuss specific pricings because of non-disclosure agreements. Uh, but it is rather expensive. Uh, although in the end, because the space and power are cheap at my house, uh, it works out about the same as, as putting the stuff in the data center with the added bonus that I get it for my house. Um, 
And it's also part of our backup strategy is having disk shelves here with the backups. So when something fails, instead of trying to restore over, even if our the connection to my house was 10 gigabits, it wouldn't be fast enough. Whereas putting the shelves out of my basement in the back of the car mm. and driving them to the data center <laughs> and swapping out huh. the dead thing or yeah. whatever huh. actually does work. <laughs> or we actually can do failover uh, to my house. Mm-hmm. Um, so interestingly is that it's going to get even more complicated in the future. <laughs> Oh. Uh, one option uh, that I discussed with the cable company that provides the connection to my house is they could actually switch from my current transparent Ethernet service, which is basically taking my Ethernet packets, jamming them in a bigger packet, and sending it across their internal network, uh, is a 10 gigabit Metro Ethernet wavelength. So this would basically be, um, if you use something like uh, what's called dense division or dense wave division multiplexing, over a single fiber, you can send that. It's about forty or fifty different channels, so different wavelengths, and you can stuff all of them down the one fiber because they're all slightly different wavelengths, so they don't run into each other. Uh, and that means you can basically send forty or fifty different ten gigabit connections across one fiber. So you just pay them, and you get one of those forty or fifty channels. Uh, and so I could get that to my house, but it's a little more than twice what I'm already paying, and it's already a lot. And I don't really need 10 gigabits to my house. Uh, yeah, I can basically, understand. My first couple of quotes were outrageous. Uh, the quote I got from like the uh, a different cable company that isn't really in my area, uh, but is bought the data center that we were in unrelated to this, uh, was $10,000 a month, which just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, but the problem is basically they were going to have the phone company run uh, a lease line from my house to the edge of their network and then haul it to Toronto on their network. And, you know, when, when we have like four different companies involved in the connection, they're all trying to make a profit. And so the price was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Luckily, uh, the cable company that actually provides cable service to my house, the node happens to be just around the corner from my house uh, across the street from the old high school. And so it was relatively easy for them to do the installation. Uh, it still took a couple of months for them to do it because they had to plan it all out and then they redid it or something. And uh, The nice thing was the deal involved no installation fee, which saved uh, a lot of hassle. Yeah, I bet. Uh, Very nice. And then, so, so now uh, I mentioned that uh, Kojiko bought the data center we were in at Pier 1. We're looking at leaving there, which is basically... Uh, a data center where you have to buy the bandwidth you have there from the company that owns the data center to a carrier neutral data center where we can buy our own bandwidth. Mm. Right? Um, but 151 Front Street, where all the bandwidth in Canada is, space and power are quite expensive. But there's other building, like a block away down the street, where space is not as expensive and you can get twice as much power for the same money. But obviously doesn't have as much stuff. And, and we already have this established stuff at, at the big data center. So we did get that uh, 10 gigabit metro wavelength between those two buildings. Because it's only like a block and a half or something. So the price wasn't as ridiculous. Uh, and so we'll have a, a switch in the meet me room where we'll get I, uh, bandwidth from a couple of different ISPs. Or, or transit providers even above ISPs. Um, and then 10 gigabit link to the data center where we'll actually put our servers and plus still maintaining the one gigabit link that goes back to my house 
Damn, Alan. So I, uh, I, hopefully soon my house will have diverse routing instead I, of only one transit provider. I can't even imagine. I mean, could you imagine telling uh, yourself 10 years ago all of this? Oh. When I, <laughs> you know, could you little, just... If you, go, if you go a little bit further back... Yeah, maybe 15 years. I'm on, I, I'm on 15K, or 56K dial-up, and there's no broadband available in the town where I live. Uh, we got broadband in 2012, or uh, sorry... 2002, uh, four months before I moved away for college. And even when I moved for college, I had uh, 1.5 megabit by 384 kilobit DSL, and I think three or five megabit down and five 12K up cable, but that had to be shared with five roommates. So that wasn't very fast. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. That was rough. All right, so if you want to send us an email, we have a few more, but only a couple of more in the bank, mm-hmm. so we'd love to get yours. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or email us directly, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or start a thread in subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit all the way there at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our powerful subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And like this one right here, top of the Roundup, (laughs) right here. SSD reliability in the real world, at least according to Google. Uh, Using data from millions of drive days in Google data centers, a new paper offers production lifecycle data on SSD reliability. Yeah, so they they use 10 different drive models, uh, three different flash types, uh, MLC, which is multi-level cell, Mm -hmm. EMLC, which I forget what the difference is, and SLC, which is single-level cell. The SLC ones are uh, supposed to have much higher write endurance because you only write to the cell once instead of multiple and... uh, they're more expensive. And, you know, I remember my first SLC drive was only like 32 gigs or something. <laughs> right, and yes. they use both uh, enterprise and consumer drives. So uh, key conclusion, they say ignore the uncorrectable bit error rate or UBER uh, specifications. They're completely meaningless. You know, when the drives say, oh, it only flip one bit in every 10 to the power of 17 or whatever. It's like those numbers mean nothing. Good news, the raw bit error rate uh, increases slower than expected from drive wearout and is not correlated to the uncorrectable bit error rate or other failures. Hmm. So uh, this is the raw bit error rate. I think it's when the drive sees a problem but corrects itself and you don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's just a number that constantly goes up. Mm-hmm. They say the high-end SLC drives are normal, no more reliable than the uh, cheaper for the same size MLC drives. Wow. Are you surprised yeah. by that, Alan? Um it depends on the workload, I guess, but a uh, little yeah, bit. I agree. Um, but, you know, it, it, as they, the big point they make is SSD age, not usage, affects the reliability. Hmm. And so I would expect both versions to have that problem. Maybe, uh, maybe it turns out that both SLC and LLC drives will run into the drive is too old to function very well before the advantage of SLC uh, over MLC. That's exactly what I was taking from this. So I was wondering, that's, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. They say bad news SSDs fail at a lower rate than regular disks, but the uncorrectable bit error rate is higher. 
Uh, and the, the article explains what that means. And they also say, bad blocks in new SSDs are common, and drives with a large number of bad blocks are more likely to lose hundreds of more blocks. Uh, so if a drive comes with a bigger number of bad blocks than another drive, the drive that had more bad blocks from the beginning is likely to lose more faster. Uh, and that also more likely to die of uh, other problems or have chip failure. They say 30 to 80%, which is a giant range. I'm not, I, I, I don't know if it's a bad summary or the that, math is that just That is a weird. huge range. Uh, but 30 to 80% of SSDs developed at least one bad block and 2 to 7% developed at least uh, one bad chip in their first four years of being in deployment. So this suggests that uh, a file system like ZFS where you have checksums of the data so you can tell when the drive has given you bad data and redundancy so that you can get the data back is very important, especially with SSDs, mm -hmm. because they tend to have more problems than a spinning disk, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is a downside of its more advantage and so on. But they have uh, lots of detail here as a paper from the File Systems and Storage Technology Conference. I want to see more companies doing this. That's yeah. great. Uh, and it's kind of along the same well, lines. Not, not everybody buys millions of SSDs. No, like no Google not does. everybody does. No, that's true. But a lot of companies, you know, a lot of big companies do. Uh, yeah. Kind of along the same lines, though, Alan, our next story in the roundup, uh, Google has maybe in the twinkle of their eye a new hard disk format in the works for yes. their data centers. So this is a form factor. So, oh, form uh, factor. Yeah. So, like, instead of, we've been using the three and a half inch drive layout with the, you know, drives like one inch thick and three and a half inches wide or whatever, uh, which is based on the size of a floppy disk drive. And that was the size of the bays in the case for a long time now. And there's, it's not necessarily the best possible layout. And so they said, rather than making bigger disks, like the old five inch disks or something, uh, they, I think they actually want to go to the, back down to the two and a half inch disk. Mm -hmm but make them thicker okay. so you can fit more platters. Okay. Uh, the advantage of having smaller disks but more of them means that the heads don't have to travel as far. Right, yeah. So you can get better seek time. Yes. They all talk about reducing so, the width of the platter naturally increases yeah. IOPS, they say. Yeah, so you get more IOPS, and then by just adding more platters, you can get back the space you've lost. So I don't know. I, I like the 3.5-inch format, so maybe 3.5 inches but thicker would be okay, but maybe, you know, Going down and getting more IOPS is the only way to get more IOPS out of spinning disks. So with the data density we have now, it's like, well, if you can make me a hard drive where I can fit more of them in the same chassis, uh, which you can with the smaller drives, although if they're thicker, maybe not. But it'd be interesting to see what we come up with where we could get more IOPS out of our spinning drives by going with like the two and yeah. a half inch version, but making them thicker so we can get as much space yeah. as we currently get I love out of it. three and a half I'm inch. ready. I'm, I'll take that. That sounds brilliant yeah. to me. I'm down for that. Um, okay, our next roundup seems like a great idea, but it could lead us down to the path of regulation that we don't want. So it's a, a double-edged sword, but you kind of got to agree. We need some sort of watchdog for the Internet of Things security, because otherwise yeah. it's going to be a freaking disaster, right? Well, but in particular, this one is uh, Comcast has their Xfinity home security system, which uh, touts as an advantage that it's all wireless. So, right. like, it puts a sensor on your door and one on the window and so on, and they communicate wirelessly so that you don't have to tear up your walls to install wires or whatever. Right. Uh, what could the go wrong, is Alan? that uh, using a simple tape recorder and a battery, uh -huh. uh, if you jam the signal, the system fails into a, a success mode. So, when 
the brain can't get a message from the window saying that the window is closed, it assumes the window is closed. Not assumes that the window is open or basically if you jam the signal, it will think all the doors and windows are closed even if they're not and it won't alert the user that it's not getting a signal. Right. And and, and the system Comcast is using is similar to a system a lot of other systems yep. are using that's been being deployed since the 90s. Yes. And the other thing is if you jam the signal, then stop jamming the signal, it could take up to three hours for the things to reconnect to each other. So you could jam the signal and then stop so they don't detect you or whatever, and then, you know, go up and open the door and it won't set off the alarm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas maybe, you know, it's like, oh, the alarm should note that, hey, I just lost contact with all the sensors. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And uh, there is some serious security ramifications well, there because business see, too is also uh, asus get slapped over their router problems recently mm-hmm. so maybe there's hope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh formerly relevant irreverent developer uh very well known outspoken matthew garrett everybody loves a, a good matthew garrett post this is a great one uh wrote i bought some awful light bulbs <laughs> so you don't have to <laughs> this is a good post for matthew garrett uh and you know what uh i have to agree but he says uh i maintain an application for bridging various non-hue lighting systems to something that looks enough like hue that amazon echo will still control them one thing i hadn't really worked out was color support so i picked up some cheap bulbs and a bridge and it kind of goes from there. The rest is all terrible, he says. Things seem promising enough at first, although the bulbs were alarmingly heavy. <laughs> I guess there's a significant chunk of heatsink built into them, he says, because they get very warm. The app was clunky, but I wasn't planning on using it for long. I pressed the button on the bridge, launched the app, and I could control the bulbs. The first thing I noticed was that they had a separate white and color mode. White mode is pretty bright, and color mode, massively less so. Presumably, white LEDs are entirely independent of the RGB ones, and a much higher intensity, still potentially useful as mood lighting. He goes on to say he started digging into it and was shocked with what he found. There's a talent daemon running, and you can just get in there and screw around. Yep. Yep. Your yep. light bulb runs busy box. Uh-huh. And it looks like there might be some copyright infringement going on, too. Well, yeah, it doesn't come with any of the GPL notices and stuff that you're yeah. expected to see when you bundle that type of thing. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I love it. I love it. I've experienced some of the same thing playing with it. I was glad Matthew wrote about that. So this one, the chairman has been talking about the whole episode, Alan. Yep. All day they've been saying Samsung is shipping the highest capacity SSD yet, 15 terabytes of storage in this bad yeah, network. It uses a SAS 12 gigabit per second interface so that you can use some of that speed. Mm-hmm. But after I got to play with the Intel NVMe drive that could do 3 gigabytes per second of reads and 1.9 gigabytes per second of writes, oh boy. the speed of that 15 terabyte uh, SSD doesn't impress me so much. Yeah. Uh, but if you need that much storage, you know, the NVMe's aren't available that big yet. Yeah, but, no kidding. So. I mean, that's 15 terabytes? Yes, NVMe's please. is you can have multiple commands executing concurrently so you can get better speed. Yeah, uh, write speeds of like 1,200 megabits with this one and, uh, you know, peak read speeds of uh, 550 megabits. That's, yeah, geez, that isn't super great. Yeah. But, you know, for that, it's as fast as an SSD yeah. in an SSD form factor, and it's massive. Put them in an uh, array. I'm sure it costs too much money. Yeah, I was looking for the price here, and I don't actually see it in this I article. I don't think they're on sale yet. Yeah. No, they're just announced. Well, 
Fair enough. All right, let's talk about this one, Alan. What's this next one? A 40 gigabit ultra fast standard. Tell me about this. Yes. So the International Telecommunications Union, who set standards for things like this, mm -hmm. have uh, done uh, initial approval for a 40 gigabit fiber to the home standard, as well as the, the 10 gigabit passive optic network. Yes, please. Yes, please. Uh, but yeah, so the big issue is like, sure, we've approved a 40 gigabit standard. How about, every, you know, we get to a standard where everybody has even 100 megabits first. Right, right, right. Well, don't worry. If you get hacked by the IRS, they're going to have the super secret pin that verifies it's you. They should put on all of your tax information. Nothing to worry about, except for that thieves nab the IRS pins to hijack some tax refunds, according to Mr. Krebs. Dang it. So whether they're just it. like, in a, they sold the database or... They got in there and they the the IRS so the IRS gets hacked and they tell ah. they switch over to this pin system right turns out this pin system has a basic compromise in it that somebody else already compromised and ah. so when they protected people with this pin system well they already so describe how we do it in Canada when you sign up for an account with the Canada Revenue Service they mail you a pin number and you have to use that to log in and I don't know everything falls back to depending on snail mail. Uh, well, 7,224,000 citizens had their tax data stolen through the IRS's Get Transcript feature between January 24th and May 2015. Yeah. Well, that was mostly uh, unrelated to the PIN. It was the breach before mm -hmm. where they just signed up uh, for people that didn't have accounts and, and submitted stuff on them. If you want to make some money, though, become a cyber criminal. Apparently, there's a talent shortage, Alan. Uh, well, just as this, the security research companies can't find enough people to help them fight the cyber criminals, the cyber criminals at the same time are competing for the same pool of people. <laughs> and, true, and, you know, the organized crime would like to hire more hackers, but there are just not any left. Wow. So go get your, go get your job. Uh, just go submit an application. That's all it takes. Uh, this one's a cute one. Uh, and a researcher over at the IBM's good old Big Blue has discovered a flaw in the WinRT PDF reader, the default reader in Windows 10, and has managed to create uh, some interesting threats that would sort of echo Flash and Java-type threats. The WinRT library is used in a number of Windows, modern, universal, metro, yawn apps, where, <laughs> yawn, uh, where PDFs can, nay, must be read and that includes the new microsoft edge web browser so yes uh it can fire off if you know we thought we got away from pdfs being the big exploit vector by you know not installing the adobe plugin in the browser so you always open it in a separate program so that you couldn't get drive by by it mm -hmm. and then microsoft goes and builds it the pdf reading into the edge browser and it's like, oh, we won't have any plugins. It'll be super secure, except for these plugins that we provided that are not super secure. Yeah. Oof. All right. Our last story on the roundup. It tickles my funny bone. Uh, Microcasting color TV by abusing a Wi-Fi chip. A wi yeah. So imagine buying this $3 Wi-Fi module. And I guess it's software-defined radio or something. And uh, by... Hanging it up with the I2S and DMA and so on, you can microbroadcast, so very low power, mm -hmm. uh, uh, NTSC, which is the North American mm -hmm. uh, old-fashioned analog TV signal. So you can generate and send a TV signal to a TV like in the same room-ish. Yeah. So if you have an old analog TV, you can tune it to a channel and send yourself a thing. That is pretty you know, I had a kit when I was a kid to do this with AM radio. 
to broadcast my voice over the yeah, radio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this, this though, this color TV is pretty neat. It doesn't take a ton of processor. It takes a $3 yeah. Wi-Fi module. Uh, kind of want to play with this, actually. <laughs> I think it would be pretty fun, actually, to be able to do that. So, I don't know, Alan. Good find. Nice way to wrap up the roundup. Uh, something like old pirate radio. Oh, it's not pirate radio. It's pirate TV. But just very, very, very localized. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> All right. Well, we'd love to have you join the TechSnap program live. Did you know TechSnap is live over at jblive.tv? 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. Go to slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. The reason why Although you might. time zone is actually wrong, probably wrong because next week. Oh, you're right. might have changed. Yes. And I don't want to do the math. No, the I'll calendar will do the math. Yes. The calendar does the math. Yes, and use the calendar for the next three weeks at least. Seriously. Because. US, because George W. Bush, oh, U.S. Boy. Canada changed two weeks earlier than everybody else. That's true. And so we'll be changing a little earlier. Excuse. And then you guys will change it. So your yep. time will change at least three times in the it. next couple of weeks. Yeah. So just use the calendar for the next couple of weeks, and then we'll get back to normal. Mm -hmm. And everybody be happy. But, and if know, we could just never do DST again, I know that would be great. One, maybe this will be the last year. Maybe it's the last time we have to do it. And uh, we'd love to have you join us live because we've got the chat room. We hang out in between segments. We take feedback live from the chat room. We can answer questions. It's a good experience. Also, we love your emails, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose TechSnap from the dropdown. Don't forget about them RSS feeds. You get the show automatically. Also, it's on YouTube. Did you know that? You probably did. You probably did. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>